everyone. Thanks for joining us for another journey through Aussie pop. I'm Gavin Scott from pop music website chartbeats.com.au and your co-host on this latest musical excursion is, of course, Robbie Molinari, who you can hear every Friday night on Joy 94.9 with his show Turn the Beat Around, which celebrates dance, funk, soul and disco music. And Robbie, this episode is right up your alley, isn't it? Hey Gavin, it absolutely is. And the band we're looking back on ticks each one of those musical genres exceptionally well. Dance, funk, soul, disco, you name it. And they took it to the forefront of the Australian music scene, making it more mainstream in the process. Our guest in this episode of the podcast is Sydney Funksters Rock Melons, and they were responsible for this number four hit single. From 1992, that word in brackets L-O-V-E was Rockmelon's highest charting hit in Australia with featured vocalist Denny Hines. But our story starts before Denny, and in fact before any of the band's vocalists were on board. Rockmelons were made up of brothers Brian and Jonathan Jones and Brian's uni mate Ray Medhurst, who met at NIDA in 1977. Bonding over a serious love of funk, soul and hip-hop music, the boys' first foray onto the music scene was in the form of throwing warehouse parties in and around Sydney. Let's hear from Brian and Ray about how those parties morphed into them becoming a band, a band which included keyboard player Vincent Dale and singers John Kenny, Sandy Chick and Peter Blakely, who all joined the project. Ray, I'm going to start with you. The initial steps, was it just to throw a party? Were you playing records? Were you playing as a band? The first one, we put together a party. I think it was my birthday. Brian was in a band at that stage, I think, and Jono was in a band at that stage, and we sort of put the Rockmelons together just as a thing because it was my party. It was just, yeah, us just doing something on a Saturday night, basically. Jono was still in Canberra. Jono was only 15 or 16 and in punk bands and, you know, would visit us in Sydney occasionally. But Jono and I used to do a little uh, ukulele duo, electric ukulele duo, which Ray was fond of. And we sort of adapted that with some other stuff and turned it into a Rockmelon show, didn't we? Yeah. But, yeah, it came out of the fact that I bought a synthesizer and I thought, oh, I should do something. <laughs> and so how did it evolve from that to adding Vince and then getting the singers and then becoming more of a thing that was, okay, this is the Rockmelons? Vinny was there from the beginning. Uh, Brian and Jono kind of knew a bit about music, but Vinny, Vinny was actually... A musician as such. I believe the question we asked Ray was, do you know anyone who knows what a chord is? Yeah. And I, I went, there was this guy at my school <laughs> who can play the piano. And Vinny was so enthusiastic to be involved. And he was in Newcastle and we'd kind of, he'd basically catch the train down and do the arrangement sort of on the train with headphones on and then arrive and tell us what he'd done. <laughs> I think the important thing to, to say about the parties is that Ray and I intended to put on a really good party by um, Ray DJing and the sound system and the DJing was as big a part. The Rock Melons were just part of that show. Ray would do these fantastic sets to reel to reel and then John and I would organise a really great sounding sound system which just wasn't the done thing in those days. And then the Rockmans would do a little instrumental set as part of the night's entertainment. But the night was really geared around a whole night, whole long party experience in a inner city warehouse space. Yeah, it was kind of like we wanted to throw a party. We should put some entertainment in there. Yeah. And that's sort of how the Rockmelons became a thing. It was like, oh, we need there needs to be a sort of focal point within the evening. And we kind of put the rock melons together as that. That was just meant to be fun. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of angsty, dark stuff around at the time on the back of punk, and our stuff was yeah. all silly, silly and fun. Yeah, and also in 1980, I'd gone to New York for a holiday, extended holiday, and rap was just emerging out of the Bronx. And then to come back to Sydney, and look, you know, I used to love a lot of those bands, but it was very sort of people wearing black and staring at their feet and playing guitars and being very depressed, whereas the hip-hop stuff at that time was very celebratory and kind of just enthusiastic. Part of it was a place for me to 
to play that music because there weren't many places in Sydney where you could hear that music if you went out to party to. When Ray came back with dyed blonde hair and a bunch of hip-hop records, that was, I mean, John and I were horrified. Like, we were, why are all these people shouting at us from that record player over there? Where did the name Rock Melons come from? Oh, it was just, it, it was a joke name, to be honest. Totally. It was a joke name for one of those parties. We have to call ourselves something. And we, and we were like, what would be the stupidest name for a punk band ever? And uh, we just jokingly made that up. And unfortunately, people loved the performance and it stuck. <laughs> yeah, I grew to really like it because it's a, it's a very, like we were a very Sydney thing and it's a very Sydney word. Like Rockmelons only called Rockmelons in a few places. They're called cantaloupes everywhere else. And it was just, it's a very sort of Sydney thing. Okay, let's talk the singers. How did they come into the picture? That may have been my fault. I'm not sure, but there was vocals before because Ray would talk the vocals. Mm -hmm. We were a little bit pinched a little bit from Talking Heads maybe, Ray? A little bit of Talking Heads, and there was a band around called, I think they were called The Wah, that they had this song called The Story of the Blues, and it was just this guy talking over this great track, and I just thought, oh, I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of... That's pretty much what I did. And then I would just write down things that I was interested in talking about. And then then we kind of needed a chorus because it couldn't just be me talking. And that's kind of how we got singers involved was to get some people to sing bits. Yeah, we just got some people in from bands we knew who could sing, whose voices we liked. Sandy Chicks and Cheating Hearts and came in and we did a, did a version, a drum machine version of Heard It Through the Grapevine. You've got to remember that all these shows were like six months or a year apart. They were occasional. They were very occasional. They were just one-off parties. But then once people started saying, we really like your band, we started to get a little more serious about it. And um, I was very keen to hear some good singers over our stuff. That's when our dear friend Jeff Stapleton from Ganga Jang played us the demos of an Adelaide guy, friend of his, a guy called John Kenny. And from the first time I heard that voice, I was like, oh, my God, we've got to find this guy, you know. And um, John was, yeah, John was very, very shy and very reluctant. In fact, said no and then snuck in to see us at a show and said to himself, oh, what have I done? This is great. I want to do this and kind of came back and thought us out. I think we picked up Peter Blakely by that stage as well. Literally off the ground, I think. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, we had Blakely on board. So it's Sandy and Blakely and then it was John. So it's this incredible trio of singers. Like we really had, we just had three dynamite singers. And I was still doing a bit of the talking songs and they would sing choruses and then they would sing songs, full songs, and then we decided we didn't really need me talking anymore because we had these excellent singers. (laughs) The next natural step for the band at this point was to record and release their first independent single. They enlisted the vocal services of former Scribble band member Sandy Chick and the end result was the indie pop track Time Out for Serious Fun. Let's have a listen. That is a fun track, that one. Rockmelon's debut single saw them breaking into the top 100, peaking at number 81, which was not a bad start. Let's hear from Brian and Ray about Time Out for Serious Fun and their debut countdown appearance. At what point did you think, let's put out a record? At no point did we actually <laughs> think that. It, like all things with the Rockmelons, we sort of stumbled into it. We'd written, we'd written our first song. It was Time Out as first song, right? Time Out was probably the first full song that we'd written. People were responding to it a lot live as well. People really enjoyed it. And so we decided to find someone to help us record it. We went into a studio with someone who remains a dear friend, David Hemming, into Albert's studios one night, and we just recorded it. And Ray was working at Phantom Records, and he got Dare to put it out on Phantom Records through the festival. And Blow Me Down, the thing was a hit. And there we are on Countdown suddenly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we we got a phone call saying, can you come on Countdown? And we were like, really? Honestly, like we we were just a bunch of inner city arty types who had no idea what was going on. And there we were on Countdown and it was quite surreal, wasn't it? It it was very unusual because they basically said you need to be in Melbourne on Sunday. And we 
went, oh, well, we'll have to hire a car and drive there. <laughs> it was bizarre. The reason that that thing took off, there was a DJ guy on, was it SAFM in Adelaide? Yes. There was this one guy in Adelaide. For some reason, we were very popular in Adelaide. We kept getting invited to go there and perform. And there was this one guy and he started playing it. And it was kind of off the back of that that the thing started to chart because it, it started doing really well in Adelaide. And then Molly kind of somehow became aware of her. Once I sort of got that taste of writing and making a record and you could get it on the radio, I, that was pretty pretty immediate addiction for me. Brian and Jono were more, I guess, professional in their approach to it, where I was just sort of like, oh, this is fun. We'll just keep doing this. <laughs> A well-respected singer on the Sydney scene and somebody who scored a big hit in his own right a few years later, Peter Blakely would provide lead vocals on the next Rock Melon single, Sweat It Out. Released in 1985 as a standalone track, unfortunately Sweat It Out failed to chart, but it would continue to lead the band on their upwards trajectory. Let's take a quick listen to the song and then we'll go back to Brian and Ray to hear about how Sweat It Out came together. Then you moved to True Tone Records, who had released Go Betweens and Ganga Jang. How did you get hooked up with them? Was that through Jeff as well? Possibly, but that was really by process of elimination. Literally no one else would touch us. There were a couple of companies that did approach us, but the deals they were offering were kind of ludicrously bad. They were just like, what would be the point? Whereas Michael Crawley at True Tone, his deal was like a, a, an actual deal. To be very fair to Michael, Michael heard it. You know, Michael heard what, and that, I think that's his Englishness. He, he, he heard what we were doing. He got it. He understood the, the sort of a lot of the soul ideas behind a lot of the black music ideas behind it. And um, he was enthusiastic, chaotic and wonderful, Michael, but he's, the, he's really the one that got it. Because you've got to remember, Australia at the time was still white music central. It was still rock and roll. It was still, you know, it was still guitars and chisel and not that there's anything wrong with that. Radio was very, it wasn't even that enthusiastic about Australian music, really, to be honest. That's yeah, true. You know, they'd play Australian crawl and chisel and stuff like that, but they wouldn't play much else. So Sweat It Out was next. That didn't have the same kind of impact as Time Out for Series Fun did. What was your takeaway from that track? I personally was devastated <laughs> because, I, you know, it's when you first think, oh, this is fantastic, we could do this, try and do this for a living, and then you have a go at it yourself and it fails miserably. And I was really devastated and, and I thought, well, that hurt. That hurt a lot and I'd like that for that not to happen again, <laughs> not to happen again. But I think that that's the point Ray said, we need a producer, we need someone who knows what they're doing in the studio. And that is that right, Ray? Yeah, because we basically had done, we'd been given a budget and we'd done Sweat It Out ourselves pretty much. And I just thought we, as much as we loved what we were doing, we kind of needed someone to sort of help us mm. achieve what we wanted to achieve. Okay, so things have been progressing nicely for Rock Melons, but they would go from making ripples on the Australian music scene to a big splash with their third single, a remake of this song. That was Rhymes by Al Green, and Robbie, it took me a long time to realise that Rhymes wasn't an original Rock Melons track. Did you know it was a cover? No, I did not. Well, not at the time anyhow, and I would have been too young to appreciate someone like Al Green you know, at around 11 years of age. But I will say this, whilst I am a fan of the Al Green version these days, I do think the Rock Melons version is on a par with the original. Their version definitely took it to another level with the addition of the gospel-like background vocals. I still do think this is a suburb track from the Rockies. Let's take a quick listen. Yeah. 
Rhymes entered the ARIA Top 50 in August of 1987 at number 41. It would spend exactly half a year in the Top 100 and reach a chart peak of 26. The single went gold and certainly made a lot of people aware of who Rock Melons were. Yeah, it was a great introduction for most of us to Rock Melons and the silky smooth vocals of John Kenny, who took the lead on this one. Brian and Ray are going to talk to us now about rhymes and working with producer Robin Smith. We loved our Al Green, and I think we just really liked that song. And, of course, John could really sing that stuff. And we probably had a few covers in the set by that stage. We had a lot of covers in the set. We were just still learning how to write. And I think Brian picked that cover. But what we were originally doing and what ended up on the record were, were very different. And that, that was one of the great things about Robin is that he, he kind of transformed it. Robin was so good for us because he basically taught us how to make records. We didn't know how to make records. And he brought an, a, a really sort of, one thing is it supreme arranger, highly trained musician, amazing arranger, horns, strings, everything. And um, he brought a concept to the song rather than just covering the song. He came up with that sort of really hard, hard funk bass line and stuff for it. And, of course, that excited us and that also really excited John, the singer, and it just came together really, really beautifully. So it was just a really good modern version of the song. And in a lot of ways, you know, just casting a great singer to a great song and doing a good version of it was kind of always what the Rockies were about. And, and how was the working relationship with Robin? Obviously you went on to do the album with him as well. well it was difficult because we're, it was a real culture clash. Robin was very proper, very proper English gent. And, of course, we were these just colonial bohemian commie bums and um, he just didn't get us. He didn't get our musical naivete or and he, didn't, he just didn't think any of that was really that valid. But he knew there was something there, you know what I mean? Yeah. He was trying to make commercial songs and hit records, which is why we had him. And I, I was trying to make a Tom Tom Club album. <laughs> and so there was a lot of clashes. There was, but it's, re it's really interesting because I probably wrote faster with Robin than anyone I ever wrote with in my, my life. And we were just polar opposite people. You don't have to get on with someone to, to make music with them, as Lennon and McCartney and Jagger and Richards have proven. <laughs> but he, Robin, was there, a real stickler for details and arrangement. And the, the, I think the main thing that Robin did, which I thought was really admirable, even though he couldn't stand us, <laughs> was he asked us and specifically Ray to say, give me a tape of all the things that you love listening to. So that's where Ray got to play him Tom Tom Club and all that parliament and all that stuff coming from that right through to every really commercial stuff michael mcdonald or all the stuff that we loved and he took that away to his hotel room and he absorbed that for a few days so that when he wrote with us he would spit those influences back out and that i think was his master stroke as a producer was to take that on board did that show the success of that song show that the public actually had an appetite for that stuff that wasn't being met a lot of its success comes down to a guy called Molly Meldrum. Exactly. Radio wouldn't touch it. The Countdown had played the clip, I think, initially, and then one week Molly went on humdrum and he held up the record and he said, this record is fantastic. I don't understand why radio's stations aren't playing it. And he just gave us this huge, and we didn't know the guy. Like even when we'd, when we'd done Countdown, we hadn't met Molly. We'd just been in a studio and got filmed. And, yeah, we had no idea, and he just sort of came on one week and said, Radio, you, you need to play this record, and that's when it started getting airplay and that's when it started to catch on. And because then the public were allowed to hear it, yeah, they bought it, and, and that was the thing. There, there was a market for the stuff that you were making, but you had to reach that market, and that was, I guess, the stumbling block. Yeah, and also at that time, basically you kind of made a record and then you went and toured and you played every pub from Cairns to Adelaide and bands would just be on the road. We weren't ever that kind of band. A tour for us was like going to Adelaide for the weekend or going to Melbourne and doing a couple of dates. And and we weren't a band as such. We were sort of more like a soul-to-soul -soul collective than a band. Absolutely. Following up Rhymes, Rock Melons had a new single on the charts in early 1988. New Groove was an original track and one that evolved over a number of years from being a down-and-out funk track to the sole track that became the final released version. I don't think any other Australian band was doing anything like New Groove in 1988. Rock Melons were definitely out there on their own. Ooh. 
I was a big fan of this one, and it took Rock Melons even closer to the top 20, peaking at number 21, and also hanging around the chart for quite a while. I really liked the music video too, which had the band, including their regular backing vocalists, Wendy Matthews and Mary as a party, jamming in the street. Who wouldn't want to hang out in that neighbourhood? Rock Melons sure were a nice alternative to all the aggressive rock bands of the time. I second that emotion. Let's go back to Brian and Ray now to hear about how New Groove came together, not once, but twice, and how on both occasions the song sounded very different. It's an interesting thing. It was a bit of a double-edged sword for us because there's a, a studio story that goes with that song, which was the original arrangement that Robin had up went to Digital Heaven during a power spike. He had to rebuild the track in a day next door and recreate it, and it wasn't really it was very different to the original track that we'd put together. It was still a hit. The song was still great, but it sounded really, really different to our ears, to what we sort of had. It was much less um, greasy or something. It was quite clean, clean and bright. So it was a bit of a double-edged sword for us. We were like, well, that's not really how we intended to sound, but people just loved it. And so we kind of went, well, we're in the pop business now. That track had dated back a while, hadn't it? Not the full version, but I think that there's a new groove in the neighbourhood yeah. that dated back to the warehouse party days, didn't it? Absolutely, it did. And it was a, it was a full Parliament funkadelic affair. It was it was heavy. It was Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel, which is just it's one of the very earliest sort of DJ mix-up tracks. And it was basically we had a chorus, which was there's a new groove in the neighbourhood. And then we had a DJ friend called Steve Olkins who had done, sometimes he would perform live on stage with us at some of the parties. Occasionally we'd have one or two DJs on stage in the band. But Steve had, with Brian, had recorded this version that was just cutting between vinyl tracks and then the, the sung chorus came in. Because it was sort of pre-sampling and, you know, there weren't very many records doing that, but the record company just went, you can't put that out. <laughs> Also, Robin said, you can't sound that black. And we were like, what do you mean? It's just how we sound. And he said, no, you can't sound that black. Radio won't play you. And we were horribly offended and suitably indignant. But, of course, he was probably right. Oh, there's no way radio radio would have played the original version. Oh, no, absolutely not. But um, that's how New Groove came about. Robin said, no, you got to write a verse. So I had to write a verse. And Ray and I got to writing melody and lyric for the verses and turned out pretty good. The next Rock Melon single took things in a different direction, didn't it? Yeah, look, the guys decided to slow the pace down a little and they released a song called What's It Gonna Be, which was more of a slow jam than ballad. Let's take a listen and you'll see what I mean. Although not a major hit single, What's It Gonna Be did help set up debut album Tales of the City to become a solid seller throughout 1988. The album was released in May of 1988 and reached a very impressive number six peak within its first four weeks on the charts. And it pretty much hung around for the rest of the year with the steady momentum aided by three more singles, which, although not chart hits, showed what a solid debut Tales of the City was. First up was Thief. Then Wendy Matthews took the lead on single number five, Jump. Which was a cover of a 1976 track written by Curtis Mayfield that originally featured in the film Sparkle and performed by the fictional group The Hearts that were led by Irene Cara. Now, there wasn't a traditional movie soundtrack, but an accompanying record of the movie songs performed by Aretha Franklin was released instead of. Let's take a listen to that version now. Now, 
And finally, in December 1988, Boogie Tron became single number six from what was an outstanding debut album. An Ari Award winning debut album, as it would turn out. Here's Boogie Tron now. That song reminds me of something that should be on the breakdance soundtrack. That is so early 80s California. It is brilliant. Look, the whole album, in my opinion, was brilliant. It did really, really well for them and it deserved to. I still play it regularly to this day in the car. For me, it's the perfect driving soundtrack. Let's go back to Brian and Ray now to hear about the album and its single releases. What's it going to be came next? Did it feel like it was a bit of a risk putting a ballad out? No, not at all, really. You'd love the song and what have you. It's more more a uh, sort of an avant-garde film clip by the th- <laughs> the film film director where he made the whole thing out of focus that went down like a lead balloon. So TV wouldn't play the clip and um and the EMI didn't bother going, maybe we should redo that. And so that was kind of wrapped wrapped it up really. But that's what she did in those days. You put out two hits and a and a ballad. Yeah, that was sort of record company theory was you you either do two hits and a ballad or two hits, depending on the A&R guy, two originals and then a cover. <laughs> but we'd already started with a cover. Yeah, yeah. And it often was the way in Australia that the cover would be the band's epic, like the end of a band. They'd do a cover and people go, oh, we love that song, we hate everything else you do, and that'd be the end of you. The album won an ARIA Award for Best Debut Album, which you shared in 1927. But, I mean, as debut albums go, were you happy with how Tales of the City was received? Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was far more successful than we'd thought it would be. You're talking about a bunch of people mucking around, very arty in a city, putting on little events for our friends, to suddenly having a, like an extremely mainstream record and getting an award. And Look, I can still remember, Ray, I think it was the album, but I can still remember Ray walking into the rehearsal room in Redfern and saying that the album was, was number one in New South Wales and sort of almost having an out-of-body experience and just looking at my brother and going, kind of just very, finding it very hard to believe. It was amazing. And I was ve- and very proud, really proud of that record. And I knew that we were truly successful. Like, I, for me, it was like, oh, this is fun. But the moment I, I really thought, oh, we, we actually have achieved something here was when Young Talent Time covered New Groove. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, we've really made it. Jump was a, a break from the other tracks. How was it working with Wendy? We've had her on the show. Oh, it was great. I mean, Wendy fit right in, you know, with the whole guest vocalist thing. And Like, we didn't muck around with our guest vocalists. They could all sing. And um, I loved Curtis Mayfield and I loved that song. Yeah, and we'd been doing it live, I think, because Wendy had been singing with us live because as we'd had more singles, we kind of needed to play more. So we were sort of, we were basically touring on the weekends and Wendy had become one of the backup singers. Wendy and Mary as a party sang backgrounds on all, on the first album. So that's where Wendy came in and we said, hey, Wendy, you want to sing a lead? And she sang Jump and it was great fun. There was a three-year gap between those Tales of the City singles and the next release to come from the Rockmelons in 1991. Let's find out why there was such a big gap, and it includes a detour to the US for Brian, Jono and Ray. Well, John got fluid on his vocal cords, and it was taking a long time to get better, and we also took a long time to write. I mean, we're a bit blood out of a stone, really. You know, a very painstaking process for us. And we'd also been on a sojourn to America. We'd been signed to Atlantic Records and we spent the summer of 89. We'd been signed in by a guy, an A&R guy, who was from the West Coast, but Atlantic Records is based on the East Coast. And so by the time we arrived in New York and we turned up, they were kind of, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) They were. Oh, we're signed to your record label. And I went, oh, really? Are you? (laughs) And the guy that had signed us had left or had gone by then. And then they had this record and they kind of went, oh, when we heard it, we thought you were black. <laughs> and the, the R&B sort of black music department didn't want to touch it. Didn't want a pet bar of it. And the pop people were like, it sounds too black. We can't do anything with this. So we sort of hung around in New York and... We'd go into the record company and they were kind of like, you're still here? <laughs> yeah, we're definitely uh, not required. 
And so anyway, that, that sort of all fell over because the guy that signed us got fired and the new people did, weren't interested. They didn't want to pick it up. But really, it was more about experiencing New York, wasn't it, Ray? Well, also, through the publishing company, they said, oh, there's this guy called Dan Hartman that you might get along with. Yeah. And we did get along with him extremely well. And we spent some time trying to write with him. But as Dan said, I think we're just too similar because we weren't creating any spark. But we just hung out with him and he was just a delight. And oh, he was sort of inspirational. He was just like, he, he really liked what we did. He just said, he just said you're good enough, do it yourself. Dan and, and the late, great Gary Ashley at Mushroom were the ones that said, you're good enough, do it yourself. He sort of gave us the belief that we could do that second record ourselves. But also, while, while we were there, the B-52s had released the album with Love Shack and they were having, like, they'd suddenly come from oblivion and we're back everywhere and we were sort of looking at cds it's like oh the b-52s are back Nile rogers produced this and then we were back hanging out with dan and we was talking about Nile rogers I said oh do you want to meet him he lives just down the road <laughs> we said sure and he said no come on i've got these three australians you should meet and the next thing a black porsche pulls up in the driveway and Nile rogers walks in <laughs> we couldn't believe it we were just pinching ourselves and Nile was the same Nile was just super supportive and love what we did and just wanted to relax over the summer and write some stuff. So we ended up hanging out with Niall and, and writing Stronger Together with him and, and again, having a bit more faith shown in us, which was lovely. And the move to Mushroom? They, they just inherited us. They didn't ask for us. And they let us know that. They're like, well, we didn't want you, but we had to take you as part of a package <laughs> X True Tone lot. But we sort of made friends that, you know, like there's lovely people there, Warren Costello and Gary Ashley, our A&R guy. I mean, Gary Ashley, to a bunch of people who didn't produce that first record, who'd fucked around for four years, opened the checkbook and said, mate, get on with it, make it yourself. And I just yeah. think that's either stupid or brave or both. People did those things in the 80s and 90s. But, yeah, we took full advantage and made a very expensive record. <laughs> so although work had begun with John Kenny on the second Rock Melons album, when it became apparent he wouldn't be able to perform, the band needed a new vocalist. Enter Denny Hines. Now, whilst Denny Hines was new on the scene, she was most certainly very well known already due to her mum being pop superstar Marsha Hines. Her first foray with Rock Melons was a cover version of the soul classic Ain't No Sunshine. Here's a little snippet. Ain't no sunshine when he's gone. Ain't No Sunshine had been a hit two decades earlier in quick succession by writer and original performer Bill Withers and then Michael Jackson, who released a cover soon after. Let's hear their versions of Ain't No Sunshine now. Wonder this time where she's gone Wonder if she's gone to stay Ain't no sunshine when she's gone with Denny on lead, Rock Mellon's remake of Ain't No Sunshine was a little bit of a risk. Bill Withers and Michael Jackson are very big shoes to fill. But it was a decision that paid off. It certainly did. Ain't No Sunshine debuted on the ARIA singles chart in late 1991 and went on to become a huge hit after reaching its peak of number five in February of 92. Now, Rock Melons always managed to personalise their cover versions just enough to make you forget that it is a cover. I think they did that with Ain't No Sunshine. Let's go back to Brian and Ray to hear about how they landed on recording the song and Denny providing the lead vocal. How did you cross paths with Denny? That came out of us touring with James Brown. We supported James Brown around Australia. And at this stage, John had sort of said, you know, I'm not sure I want to do it anymore. I can't really do it anymore. You know, his throat was still giving him trouble. And I think maybe also perhaps a little overwhelmed by being the focus of attention. John liked it much better when it was Sandy, him and Pete Blakely up front all together as a, you know, the three of them singing together. He loved that atmosphere. He felt very secure in that. 
whereas when we made the record, it, it came down to focusing on him. I don't think he enjoyed that quite as much. Anyway, John couldn't sing the second record. We waited for him for quite a while, and in the end, we just went, we've got to move on. He was fine with that, and we needed a singer to sing the songs. And then we'd written It's Not Over with John, with John's vocal on it. So uh, I needed a singer to sing that, and we'd heard about this singer, Denny Hines, from Ronnie Laster, who was James Brown's uh, guitar player, and we heard a tape of hers, and I thought, oh, this is an interesting voice. She sings in the same key as John. How very convenient. So we met up with Denny and said, here, sing this, and she could sing it really well, and so we went, okay, let's go. We've got to go, and that was pretty much how it went. Well, then Denny actually, she liked, I think it was Michael Jackson's version of Ain't No Sunshine. And she said, oh, I, I would like to sing this. Mm. And we went, oh, that, it's kind of been done 2,000 times. But if we can find a way into it, and, and she could sing it, like there was no question that she could sing it, but it was just finding a way to make the song fresh again. So we we worked on it for a long time, just trying to find a version. And again, Gary Ashley from Mushroom, we, we would come up with a version. We'd go, oh, we think this is it. And then Gary would listen to it and say, no, nah, it's not there yet. Keep going. And so we we kept going. Well, Denny, Denny here's the interesting thing. Denny didn't want to keep going. She goes, I've sung and it's done, it's finished. And Gary Gary wasn't having it. He's like, get back in there and sing it again. Yeah. You know, he's basically saying, do whatever the boys ask you to do. We got it, got a great vocal and we got the song in the end. The other thing that we did, which was we kind of went, oh, it just, and Gary was a bit, it's a bit one note, it needs to change gear. And we went, well, it's really simple. And then we went, it needs another verse. <laughs> <laughs> we can give it a, a lift. So we wrote a verse to this song. <laughs> I know. I keep forgetting about that. We actually added a verse to a classic and no one complained because it was a hit. No. <laughs> it was the strangest thing. Where It was just like, yeah, it needs to go somewhere in the final third of the song. So we added the please, please bit and Gary went, that's it. You've got it. <laughs> And did you have to get permission to do that? We didn't know you had to, so we just did it. Right. No one complained because it's kind of it kind of sounds like an ad lib. It kind of sounds like an R and B ad lib. Yeah. And so we got away with it. But it is structured exactly as per the verses before. Now that single took you into the top five, so like blew all all your other chart performances out of the water. Was that a surprise, or did it feel like Australia had caught up a bit? No, it was a real sleeper. It did nothing. We put it out and it did nothing. And we thought, oh, well, there goes that record. And um, a racing station started playing it, 2KY or something, probably off the strength of the fact that it was Marsha's daughter. But it did nothing for a long time. And then it got some action and it started to bite. And then we did Hey, Hey, It's Saturday. The Hey, Hey, It's Saturday appearance was really good. Like it looked and sounded money. Like they used to spend a lot of money on production at Channel 9. And it just looked great. It just resonated and then away it went and then when it did you know go top five you know how, how did you react to that ray oh i think at the time we were kind of in the middle of what what the hell are we going to do to make the rest of the album i don't remember sort of having a lot of time to contemplate it i think we were madly scrambling to think what are we going to do to finish another album because it was like, oh, well, we've, we've got that. I do remember Gary actually giving me one of the, the band, one of the best bits of advice ever when it clicked into gear and started moving. He rang up and he went, everybody stay calm, we're having a hit. <laughs> and I just thought that was just the best bit of advice, you know, because people tend to look, completely lose their mind. And Gary was like, nobody lose their mind, please. This we're we're going to do some serious business now. So, yeah. Proving Ain't No Sunshine was no fluke, Rock Melons and Denny Hines followed it up with another top five hit, this time the original song That Word L-O-V-E, which we heard at the start of the episode. I would class That Word as an Aussie classic. It's the perfect little pop song and well ahead of the reggae onslaught that would start to occur a year after. Look, 1993 saw big reggae hits in Australia from Inner Circle and Snow, plus then we got Innie Kamosi and Diana King in 94 and 95 respectively, but the list goes on. Yeah, they really were ahead of the curve on that reggae resurgence, weren't they? But some parts of the Australian music industry weren't as adventurous as Rockmelons, especially when it came to this bit of the song. Positive, positive, negative, negative. Never you try to think negative. You got to think positive. Right, hello, we must have a big guy, man, it's not no fugitive. One corner on the ranks. Long side, cut the ranks. 
Unfortunately, the band encountered a few struggles with that word, L-O-V-E, mainly around their decision to dabble with reggae and where that fitted in on the Australian music scene. Let's go back to the interview and hear the story firsthand from Brian and Ray. And so that word came next. Did that come together easily? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing, Gavin. Nothing came together easily for the Rock Melons. If there was a really difficult, expensive way to do it, a lot of it's sort of naive kids bumbling around in a very expensive business. You have to you have to remember that making a record in the 80s was an incredibly industrial process. People have forgotten and kids have no idea how expensive it was to make a record in those days. We worked out at festival studios and festival, even though we were assigned to them through Mushroom, did us no favours with the invoicing on the studio. It was really, really expensive. We had expensive taste. We used, we involved overseas people in a few things. It cost a lot of money. So, no, that word went around the world. I'll let Ray tell the story. Well, basically, there was a Jamaican rhythm that was around at the time called the Soundboy Rhythm, which is a particular rhythm feel. And we'd had that word and we tried it in various forms. And I said, can we try it sort of over this rhythm? And it sort of started to come together that way and it kind of worked. I should jump in and say that we did try to record those songs with Robin and it was a disaster. We'd really worn out our working relationship. Robin couldn't, whereas he was able to really get on the right side of the groove of what we were doing the first time. The second time in, we just couldn't musically find each other. And so that cost us a lot of money that we had to start over. So we had we really had to solve all the musical issues ourselves at that point. Anyway, carry on, Ray. Then there was this producer that I liked in Jamaica called Donovan Jermaine. And I, <laughs> just being naive as I was, just went, oh, well, I'll just get in touch with this Jamaican producer and said, would you like to produce a song for an Australian band? And he said, sure, it'll cost you this much. And I went, okay. And it wasn't actually that much money. So we sent him the vocals and then he did an arrangement of it. And I said, oh, it'd be good if it had some sort of toasting at the beginning. Of and he said, like, what? And I said, oh, like, Nada Ranks, who's on Soundboy and, you know, Cuddy Ranks. And he said, well, why don't I just get them? And I said, okay, do that. That would be good. And so the full version, which has the Jamaican stuff in it, is what we got. But when we got the version back, it was very Jamaican and it wasn't going to get any airplay in Australia. Then the three of us set to sort of just reworking the track with all the Jamaican elements and Denny and finally created what came out. But I I was spent. By the time we were finished producing it, we were spent. We didn't know what we had on our hands. Gary was very, he really trusted us. But he was very sceptical and he said, I, I don't see how you're going to have a hit on Australian radio with a reggae song, but I trust you guys. We'd shot the video and we had a, a VHS of the video. Radio weren't interested and I happened to have a VHS of the video in my backpack and I played it to them and they just loved it. And they'd gone from, we're not interested in this reggae thing to, oh, we love this song. But didn't they make you cut the toasting at the start? For the radio edit? Yeah. I don't know that they made us do it. I think it, it would, would have been too much for Australian radio at the time. Oh, we got, no, we got told we had to take it out. Yeah, because Cuddy and Nardo ranks, you know, is heavy Jamaican accents. You can't really understand what they're saying. We loved it, of course, but we were advised to take it out. Now, just as they had done with the first album, Rock Melons slowed things down for the third single from their second album, Form One Planet. Co-written by Brian with John Kenny and originally demoed with him, It's Not Over is reminiscent of an R&B slow jam from the 80s. It's always reminded me of two occasions by The Deal. But despite those types of songs not always doing that well in Australia, even in the early 90s, It's Not Over reached number 15 here. Let's take a listen. I was a big fan of It's Not Over, and that, along with Love's Gonna Bring You Home, were the standout tracks for me from the superb Form One Planet LP. And look, I wasn't the only one who thought the same way. The LP struck a chord with Australia far and wide. It sold over 70,000 copies and reached a chart peak of number three in 1992. This was huge. I remember going into Brashes to actually either buy this or Bobby Brown, and um, the guy behind the counter was like, he was trying to really push Rock Melons. It was that good. And he was right. It was up there. It was world class. Gavin, did you have any favourites from the album? 
Yeah, I really like Rain, which features Sweden Sour creator and songwriter and podcast guest Joanna Piggott on vocals. And of course, there was the title track, Form One Planet, which was another single. That was a lot of fun too. Let's hear a bit of Rain now, and then we'll go back to the guys to hear how the rest of the Form One Planet campaign panned out. Last Denny single, It's Not Over, which obviously John had previously done, was was it bittersweet putting that out with Denny? I mean, she did a great job of it, but it was a bittersweet putting that out not as originally intended. To be honest, it was, but it's such a great version. You know, I don't really mind. And we got Doug Williams to cut loose with her at the end of the song and they take it out as a duet. I mean, there's there's so much to love about that version. But, um, yeah, there's part of me always wishes John had been the one to sing it. In, in a nutshell, how would you sum up working with Jenny Hines? Well, productive. It was a combination that worked. The Rock is a, we always had a knack for choosing the right singer, really good singers. And Denny was no, no different. She's a good singer. We did really excellent work with her. But, you know, she's a, she's a hothead. She's very hard to handle. And also with the success, like when Gary actually said, everybody keep calm, we're having a hit record, Danny was didn't. very much, yeah, pretty much didn't. And <laughs> when we first started working with her, she was very meek and mild and kind of shy. But the more successful the stuff became, the more difficult she became to work with, really. And she was dating, when we were recording It's Not Over and stuff, she was dating Kirk and NXS were recording down the road and we'd, she'd be down at their recording sessions and we'd have to ring up and say, can you come into the studio? Oh, we're just about to have dinner. And it was, it just, by the time we finished that track, it was just clear that we weren't going to be able to get any more material with Denny. Oh, look, I just think, you know, those things have a really small window. We had a moment in time. It's a, it's a real shame we weren't able to follow through with her promoting that record overseas. That was the big shame. She pulled out before we could take it to England. And that would have been, that word promoting it with her in England would have been a dream. It would have been great. But she wanted to do other things. I think she had other people in her ear. And um, that's the way it went. But, you know, that's showbiz. During the working relationship, was it tense at times? Oh, yeah. She'd openly tell you that the song was shit. (laughs) (laughs) For whatever reason, she didn't like that word. And she was quite happy to tell anybody that was interviewing (laughs) What she thought of it. Yeah, yeah. But the other side of that was, you know, we had three singles. And Gary, again, Gary Ashley was pretty much, I've got my three hit singles. Do whatever you want now. Yeah. And that gave us the opportunity to go out and find other people to make the rest of the record. And so we got to play around and do things like Rain with Joanna Piggott, which is kind of mine and a lot of people's favourite track on the album. And it was just a kind of idea thing. And it, you know, it wasn't, it was just us having fun. And got to record Doug Williams, who's one of the great singers. Yeah, got to put tracks together with Doug Williams. And Love's Gonna Bring You Home is other people's other favourite song off that album. And we're not quite done with the Form One Planet era because it would end up stretching out for quite a few years, wouldn't it, Robbie? Yeah, look, it did. Now, as part of Mushroom's move into the UK, Rock Melons were given a major push there, and some great remixes were made of standout tracks from Form on Planet, in particular the club-orientated songs Stronger Together and Love's Gonna Bring You Home. Let's take a quick listen to both of those now. For me, that single remix of Stronger Together, which was cut down from the Paul Gotell mix, might just be my favourite release by Rock Melons of all time, although New Groove and that word do come close. I love the fact that they were able to get Eric Kappa to remix that particular version of Love's Gonna Bring You Home we just heard. That guy has since gone on to become one of the most well-known and respected remixes. But let's go back to the interview now to hear about those UK releases. Those two 
received a lot of club action in the UK specifically, but also in American clubs. Tell me the story about Mushroom UK and, and the experience over there with that. We were kind of the canaries in the mineshaft in that Gary was like, I'm going to London, I'm going to set up the label because I'd gi- he'd given away Kylie and Jason and he's, I'm going. And I think they tried to set up there before and they kind of were treated as sort of these low-life Aussie interlopers and he, he had a bucket of money and it's like, I'm going to open up an office on Kings Road in Chelsea and I'm going to do it this time. So we were kind of one of the first experiments and Tony Perrin, she was there as well. There are a bunch of people and oh, every kind of... It didn't work is what you're trying to say. <laughs> they had all of these English... It wasn't called payola. They were called like promoters, but you basically had to pay these people a lot of money and they said, oh, we'll get your, you know, this radio station and that radio station to add it. And because they didn't really know the system, it was kind of like anybody could walk into that office and say, oh, I'll get Radio 1 to play a record. Give me £20,000. All right, pluggers. Pluggers, that's what they were called. They were just shysters, all of them, cowboys. Yeah, they just saw this Australian guy with a lot of money and said, yeah, give me £20,000, I'll get you a song on BBC One or whatever. So if we thought the gap between albums one and two was long, that was nothing compared to the break between Tales of the City and Rockies 3, which came out a decade later in 2002. Granted, the band had been busy, though. Transitioning into more a behind-the-scenes role as in-demand songwriters and producers, just to name a few, they worked with people like CDB, Human Nature, AK Soul, Kaylan, Marsha Hines, and even Bardot. Yeah, you can hear Brian and Ray discuss that production work in the full interview in the bonus material, more on that at the end. But what prompted them to make a return as artists in their own right? Let's listen to Rock Melon's comeback single, All I Want Is You, featuring Jeremy Gregory, which, despite a heap of radio support, only managed to peak at number 41. Then the guys will tell us all about their third album and the roadblocks they faced with it. What prompted a return to the recording studio as artists? Peter Carpenter, when he was at Mushroom, wanted us to do it. Yeah, it was really the record company's wish. We were kind of hesitant, and our manager at the time was kind of like, you've got to do this. And Peter Carpenter, who we liked a lot, he was like, come on, make a record. You know, I want to work with you. And that was kind of the the genesis. It wasn't Mm. any sort of driving creative impulse on our behalf. And I love, I think, I just think there's some fantastic stuff on that record and we worked really hard on it and there's some really beautiful stuff on it. It's funny, John, Kenny, was the one that rang up and said, I love that record. (laughs) I think that's such a great record. But it just didn't. We had a song ripping up the charts with a singer called Jeremy Gregory who was part of the Kalen crowd called All I Want Is You. The clip was amazing. It was doing really well. And then such a shame, the Kalen boys and the people involved with Kalen Called him and made him unavailable for it, and it killed the whole project dead. Yeah, we couldn't do any kind of live or television stuff or anything because they just said, "Oh, he's unavailable." We're, and we said to them, "What are you doing? Like you, we don't want to sign him. You can have him. He's just a guest singer. It's a hit. Take a hit. Never walk away from a hit. It's an unwritten rule of the music industry. You never walk away from a hit, or karma will get you." And and Ray was saying to to the organisation, don't do it, you'll hurt his career. Well, of course it did, and um, never heard from Jeremy Gregory again. But, um, yeah, we it killed the project and um, it was a very sad end to a working relationship and whatever, and a, a really good record gone not to waste. I mean, there's some beautiful stuff on that record. Give Me One Good Reason with Darren Percival singing, co-written with Darren from Kalen, and It was just really willfully destructive behaviour. And um, it hurt everyone. It hurt them. It hurt us. And it hurt Jeremy. Was it nice compared to the first two albums where you were like really going against the grain in the Australian industry? Was it nice to be releasing in an environment where there were others like you? (laughs) But at that stage, radio kind of were treating us as, oh, the Rockmelons, they're so 90s. So they they didn't want to play it on the ground. That We were sort of like old fashioned. (laughs) They were very hesitant to play it. And they were just like, it went to number one on the club charts, that 
track mm. and they still were like uh, that's how a lot of dance music was crossing over to radio was if you could get to number one on the club charts radio would take a bit of notice but radio was kind of like yeah we don't care yeah but remember i remember we got told by the record company i got told to call up the programmer at two-day fm and have a chat to him about what else we could do to the version to get them to play it this is jeremy gregory singing right it's incredible vocal and the programmer at two-day fm went yeah maybe you could have a girl sing it and i i just i I could not believe it and i was so across with the record company but anyway for, for whatever reason it caught fire and it started to move really fast and that's when they um, his people pulled the plug on it. And then the follow-up I am playing, again, it did really, we did sort of some club mixes and it, it did really well on the club charts. But, again, there was just resistance at radio. I think for us, I don't know that, you know, you were sort of saying what did it feel like to release into a market that finally understood what we did. And I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I think what we did was just what we did. What the rest of the market had thought or catching up to what we were doing or basically embracing black music didn't really, really occur so much to me. It wasn't really a problem. I still liked what we liked and we still made what we, what we made. I certainly look back on when we first came on the scene as appreciating more and more that we were a fair way in front of the game at the time, but it was just great fun. And that was the second single from Rocky's Three, I Ain't Playin', which featured Roxanne Labras, who some of you may also remember from the third season of Australian Idol, in which she placed ninth. And although that third album didn't find commercial success at the time, it was a great addition to Rockmelon's discography. Sure, it would have been great for the band to have gone out on a high, but the success of those first two albums more than makes up for it. Rockmelons always went against the grain in the Australian music industry and succeeded against the odds. They brought some much-needed variety to the music landscape here, and although we were reasonably well-served by local synth-pop in the late 80s and pure pop in the early 90s, Rockmelons mix of soul, funk, R&B and reggae really broadened the Australian pop offering. Yeah, they certainly did all of those things, Gavin, that you mentioned. But listening back to the story from these guys firsthand, what I loved the most about it was just hearing their recollection of rubbing shoulders with people like Niall Rogers and and Dan Hartman, who were absolute gods in, you know, the disco, funk and soul industry and, and musical genre. But these guys were like, there's nothing we can do here to help you. You know, you, you've got it all under control. These songs sound amazing as they already are. And I loved hearing that from them because that just really proves how good rock melons were. You know, and their music was, it was world class. And I kind of wish that they had taken off, you know, more so in the UK and and places like that. It really do have a big mark for that kind of music. I've absolutely loved hearing this story and well done on the interview. It was great to hear from the guys. And yes, it does feel like after that first album, then they were off and flying and they Mm -hmm. really became Mm -hmm. the go-to guys in Australia for pop production. That's what we love on A Journey Through Aussie Pop. Now, you can hear the full interview with Ray and Brian in the bonus material for this episode, and you'll hear them talk about that production work they did between albums two and three. And Brian also talks about his work on the Guy Sebastian and Shannon Knoll albums that came out just after the first season of Australian Idol. And he also did some of the other Idol stuff as well. But in particular, after that first season, it was a real pressure cooker environment. And you'll hear Brian talk about that. To check that out, head to chartbeats.com.au slash Aussie, where you can subscribe for all the bonus material for this episode and every episode of A Journey Through Aussie Pop. And, Robbie, I reckon we should maybe mm-hmm. try and get Ms. Denny Hines on the show. It was great to hear the guys talk about her, but I think yeah. she had a fairly interesting journey of her own. I would love to hear her story directly from her. I think that's a great idea. But coming up next on A Journey Through Aussie Pop, another artist that Rockmelons worked with oh so briefly was Bardo, and we're going to hear the Bardo story from this lady. 
Hi, I'm Belinda Chappell and I'm talking to Chartbeats about my journey through pop. And we might just be able to track down some of the other Bardo members as well to add their stories to our podcast. So lots to look forward to. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us in this episode. Thank you, Robbie Molinari. Thank you, Mr. Gavin Scott. And don't forget to uh, find us on all of the social. I'm at Joy Turn Beat Around on every Friday night live on Joy 94.9 with Turn the Beat Around. You can find me at ChartbeatsAU on Instagram, Threads, Twitter, aka X. And you can also find Chartbeats and Journey Through Pop on Facebook. Bye for now. Thanks, everybody. See you later.